From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers. Today, we're sharing the audio from our official announcement of this year's New York Film Festival Main Slate, and a Q&A with writer-director David Lowry, whose new film, Pete's Dragon, comes out this weekend. The 54th New York Film Festival is right around the corner, continuing the tradition of bringing the year's best cinema from around the world to New York audiences at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Yesterday, the festival's main slate was announced in an intimate press conference in our amphitheater, where NYFF director Kent Jones presented this year's list of groundbreaking films. Festival veterans like Pedro Almodovar, Kelly Reichardt, and Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne will return, and newcomers like Kenneth Lonergan, Allison McLean, and many more will make their NYFF debuts. For a complete list of films, visit filmlink.org NYFF. Here's Kent on this year's selections. Thanks for coming. This is the first time we've ever done this, and I'm really happy to be sharing this with you and to be, you know, taking whatever questions you have afterwards. Um, I think I, w- I just want to start by saying that with every year, with every slate that's announced, um, there's a question that arises and, you know, in interviews and stuff like that, which is, what are the themes that you pursued? And my answer is, is generally the same. It's a perfectly understandable question, and it's an intelligent one and a good one, but the themes, we don't pursue the themes, you know? Um, and it's interesting because the themes kind of arise uh, without anybody, you know, being conscious of it because, you know, people are responding to the same things. We're all breathing the same air, sharing the same world, listening to the same um, obnoxious blather from politicians. Um, but we're, you know, we're responding to the same dangers and so, and and then responding to other things that are just intangible. So it's inevitable that you're going to see common themes running through um, a lot of the work without people even trying. And that's what's exciting about it because afterwards you can see it and you guys are going to have, you know, more of a sense of it than we are in, in a sense because what we're doing is just going through looking at a lot of movies um, and when I say we, I mean, you know, myself, Dennis Lynn, Amy Tobin, Florence Almazzini, we're looking at all of this stuff and, you know, selecting these films. Um, I say very often, but I just want to say again, we're able to stick to our mission to the integrity of our mission because we have a very very good and supportive board and i you know can't thank them enough for that because that's not always the case we're not interested in you know selecting a movie just because we can put stars on the carpet um you know we do have world premieres um in the opening slot you know the big slots but we're not selecting them just because they're world premieres we're selecting them because we think they're good films um, I guess that, you know, in, 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 th- in the case of this particular year, all three films in, the, um, in those big slots are world premieres. And of course, you know, we announced David DuVernay's film a while ago, and that is the first time that we've shown a documentary on opening night. Um, you know, I think that for me, the borderline between documentary and fiction is a very, very porous one, and it's a question of, What's a, what's a good movie and what isn't? 
And good movies happen in all different kinds of ways. In the case of this particular one, it's a filmmaker just meeting the moment head on um, and kind of redirecting the conversation about an issue that is discussed um, or recognized, but that isn't really um, understood or formulated by a lot of people. And she does it in a way that I is, that's absolutely electrifying. Um, the other two films in those slots are different kinds of animals. You know, uh, 20th Century Women by Mike Mills is for anybody who lived through 1979 an uncanny experience. I mean, you know, right down to the plaster on the walls and the, you know, the uh, coffee cups and the and the conversation across the tabletop. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing film. By the way, featuring uh, a genuinely great performance by Annette Bening. Um, and then the closing night film, The Lost City of Z, is something completely different. This is a film that, you know, by a director who's been trying to get the project off the ground for many years, and he was finally able to. And it's um, it's a it's an impassioned work, and it's also a um, kind of movie making that really, really is almost gone now. Um, by that I mean immaculately crafted, epic in scope. But then on the other hand, it's a different kind of epic. I don't want to say too much more about it, but it's it's a movie that really becomes um, abstract in a surprising way. Um, a lot of the films that we've selected, I have to refer to my sheet, I don't have them all memorized. Um, a lot of the films that we've selected, uh, we saw in Cannes. A lot of the films that we selected, we didn't see in Cannes. A couple of them originated in the Berlin Film Festival, some in Sundance. Uh, others, you know, this is, the, you know, the, these are American premieres. And um, I'll just kind of, you know, take you through, do kind of an aerial overview of the selection. Um, Aquarius. Um, and L, Graduation, I, Daniel Blake, which was the prize winner in Cannes, Julieta, Neruda, Patterson, Personal Shopper, Sierra Nevada, Staying Vertical, Tony Erdman and The Unknown Girl are all films that were in Cannes. Um, and they were in, uh, Neruda was in the Kanzen, the, the director's fortnight. Um, I think that most of you probably have read quite a bit about Tony Erdman. It's um, absolutely, it's a film that took the press by storm and con. I mean, I've never seen an audience react like that. Um, it did not win any prizes, which puzzled people and still puzzles me to this day, but whatever, you know, who cares? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a movie that everybody who saw it came away feeling like, you know, that was, a very rare experience. And that's a movie by a filmmaker named Maran Ada, who's only made three films, but they're all very special. She made a movie a few years back that was in the New York Film Festival called Everyone Else, Ale Anderen. Um, and uh, this movie is bigger, bolder, it's funny, it's moving, it's very, very uh, up to the minute in terms of addressing what's going on in, in, in Europe and, and in the world. Um, and it's, uh, it's a rare thing because it's a big artistic success and a crowd pleaser at the same time. Um, I think that 
you know, uh, there's a Hong Sang Soo movie on here, yourself and yours, and anyone who's followed the festival selections might be saying to themselves, oh, that's the annual Hong Sang Soo movie. <laughs> um, but, you know, here's the thing about Hong Sang Soo. He's a very prolific filmmaker. Um, thank God. He's also a filmmaker who uh, works building from movie to movie. So, you know, the last movie, there'll be an element in it that'll be kind of magnified in the next movie, and then so on and so on. So on. Um, and that's an incredibly rare thing, someone who's able to build a body of work organically like that. He works very, very economically. Um, he... Uh, shoots constantly. As a matter of fact, when we were in Cannes this year, um, I was talking to uh, um, someone who said, oh, Hong Sang Soo is actually here. Uh, he's uh, shooting a movie up in the hills. And was, what are you talking about? So he said, well, he called Isabelle Huppert, with whom he had made a, a film a few years back. And he said, so uh, do you have time to make a movie next week? <laughs> And she said, well, I'm going to be in Cannes with the Paul Verhoeven movie, L, which we're also showing. And um, he said, great, I'll be down there. She said, well, <laughs> he said, I wasn't planning on staying there for a really long time. I'll be there for about, you know, maybe eight days. And he said, perfect. So, you know, he's, he's and, and since yourself and yours, he's already made another movie, which isn't quite finished yet. And then he's got the Isabelle Huppert movie lined up. So... Um, to me, he's one of the most, he's a very, very precious figure in world cinema, and he's one of the most uh, unusual and um, erudite and um, dynamic and adventurous filmmakers around. Um, there are films by people whose work we've shown before, Eugene Green, um, The Son of Joseph, uh, The Dardenne Brothers, The Unknown Girl, which by the way, uh, you know, as most of you probably know, has been altered since it was since it premiered in Cannes. Um, Things to Come by Mia Hansen Love, which is also with Isabelle Luper. It's very busy. Um, which was in the Berlin Film Festival. Um, we showed Mia's last film, Eden, a couple years ago. We've supported her work. Um, however, I do want to say that it's never a matter of like giving somebody a pass. Okay. Um, when there's a filmmaker that appears a lot, like Olivier Assayas, for instance, with Personal Shopper, um, it's not a matter of just saying, "Oh, there's the new one," you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll take that. It's always a matter of responding to the new work um, because they're all different. Um, some filmmakers are at working at such a high level that, yeah, it's less likely that they won't that we won't show them. That's that's true, but there are very very few of them. <laughs> you know, Olivier Assayas happens to be one of them, I think. You know, um, and um, you know, most we've shown most of his films over the years since Cold Water in 1994, with some exceptions there for a while. Um, but again, it's never a matter of just sort of like, oh, here's the next one, um, and that's some, something that I really want to stress. Um, the prize winner in Cannes, I, Daniel Blake, uh, by Ken Loach, is a very special film that, um, you know, it's, 
a movie that after it was over moved Donald Sutherland not just to tears but to you know kind of convulsive. Um, he was he was deeply deeply moved by it, um, and he was he was he was one of the key members of the jury in Khan. Um, it's a movie that, along with some other films that are in the selection, I would refer you to. Let's say. This is what I wrote in the in the intro to Fire at Sea by Gianfranco Rossi, for instance. Um, obviously, Ava's film, Aquarius by Clipper Mendonça Filho, which is about um, Michael. Did I get that pronunciation right? Okay, thanks. Um, it, which is about someone who's facing um, eviction from an apartment building where she's the only person left. It's being you know torn down and turned into something else by a, by a company. And she's a former music critic, uh, played by Sonia Braga. Um, these are films that meet uh, dilemmas and um, crises that a lot of people face head on. In the case of Ken Loach's movie, it's something that resonates deeply with a lot of people because it's about getting lost in the bureaucratic maze. Um, anybody who's ever been on the phone um, without talking to a human being for 45 minutes and listening to, like, you know, Vivaldi, um, and, you know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, a voice coming in every, every, every uh, five minutes saying, you know, giving you a pitch for, you know, um, some kind of insurance plan, knows what we're talking about. Um, and I have to say, the movie really, um, it steers directly into that. Um, it really doesn't pull any punches. It also has, I, I have to admit, one of the most shattering scenes that I've seen all year. I'm not going to say what it is, but it's, um, it's a formidable moment. Um, and then there are other films, again, I'm referring to the beauty of my own quote um, in the press release. Now, I, 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 you know, there are other films that are pitched at a different level. For instance, Personal Shopper. Um, or Patterson by Jim Jarmusch, which are films that are focused inward and they're looking at individuals and how they comport themselves in the world at large. And uh, in a strange way, it's interesting because when you have those films with those different kinds of perspectives together, you get a three-dimensional portrait in a way. Pedro Almodovar's film would be another example. Um, Manchester by the Sea by Kenny Lonergan, which you know everybody has, uh, um, I'm sure, for those of you who haven't seen it, an immensely powerful experience and something that you know really caused a sensation in uh, Sundance. Um, another film would be Certain Women by Kelly Reichert, which is about the, the fine-grained things um, in, in, uh, in life, the fine, the fine grain of existence, let's say. Um, there are films that are, you know, I, I'm, I'm very, very happy that we're showing the rehearsal by Alison McLean because um, she's a filmmaker that uh, has made two fiction features in one documentary, and she's been she hasn't made a film since um, 1999, um, a, f a fiction film, a fiction feature. She's done a lot of work in television. You know, the first two films, Crush, was her New Zealand, you know, the film that she made in New Zealand uh, that, that, you know, got her attention. And then um, she made the adaptation of Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son. And then she's had a lot of projects that she's tried to get off the ground and hasn't been able to. So I'm really excited that we're showing the rehearsal. It's a beautiful film. Um, 
with an ending, one of those endings that seems kind of like impossible to pull off, and she does. It just kind of lifts the whole film into the air like a like a balloon. Um, I think that you know, I, I as far as as addressing individual titles, we can we can do that if you guys have any questions. Um, other than that, I don't want to just like you know take you through title by title, or kind of um, duplicate the information on the on the release. Um, I just want to say that uh, I'm immensely proud that we're showing all of these films. Um, I think that they're all vital and important works. Um, none of them is made offhandedly or to satisfy a mandate or to illustrate an issue or to, you know, plug in a, you know, satisfy a niche. Um, there are a lot of movies like that, a lot of movies like that. They're made at all different kinds of levels, um, economically speaking. And um, that's not the same thing as, you know, good filmmaking is, you know, by people who are gonna drop dead, you know, before they they need to get their films made, and they're gonna do anything to do them. That's what all of these films represent. On the provocative choice to open the festival with Ava DuVernay's documentary, The Thirteenth. It's not like um, a conscious effort to shake things up. On the other hand, were we aware of the fact that it's a provocative choice? Sure, but you know, like I said, I don't. You know, the, the barriers between documentary fiction, abstract, narrative, non-narrative, you know, for me, get more and more porous. Maybe that's, you know, just me. Um, as I get older, I, I, I just don't, they seem less and less meaningful to me. Um, I suppose that also, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're in a um, <laughs> strange moment in this country. Um, and so, you know, I live, you know, we're all responding to that moment. I suppose that that's part of it too. It's a movie that just looks, you know, directly into the face of something that's just at a crisis point um, in the country. But that's the interesting thing about that, though, is that there, I can imagine a lot of other films that would do that and just kind of do it dutifully and give you the facts and here you go. Um, not the case with this film. This movie takes it's a it's a historical synthesis. Um, let's say that, you know, it kind of takes, it's the same kind of historical synthesis that Tanisi Coates was making with, you know, the case for reparations, his article in the Atlantic Monthly a few years back. But then this one is even more potent, I think, because you're looking at, you know, um, she's tying something together that I don't think, I, you know, I'm sure people have done it before. Angela Davis, I'm sure, has written about it. Um, this is her subject, and she's featured prominently in the movie. But I don't think that it's really been understood that way on a, on a mass level. And um, that's electrifying. I mean, she actually does it in the process of meeting something head on. She creates like real art. The other way that I would um, answer your question, though, is uh, you know this question of award season, right? Because you know. Um, this is a question that comes up too every year. It's like, well, you know, you're a real player in award season, you know, now that you have these world premieres, and, you know, can you talk about that? And it's like, no, I can't. 
you know, I, I, if, we, if we started worrying about, you know, being viable for awards season, um, we'd be lost. We'd be throwing away our mission and just, you know, advocating and saying, okay, you know. Um, and our mission is something that's very precious because, you know, like I said, it's protected. Not other people, a lot of other people don't have that. Um, and I appreciate that. So it's our job to maintain the integrity of the mission. So um, that's not to say that, you know, um, that's to say that it's a different kind of opening night that's electrifying in a completely different way. You know, and yes, it's, it's provocative in a sense, but in another sense, it's just another great movie. Um, one thing that I also want to stress is that there are more announcements coming down the pike because we have, you know, it's, it's not just the main slate. So there are quite a few surprises that we'll be announcing, really nice surprises. Um, and, you know, there's our documentary slate, there's our convergence slate, there's our avant-garde slate, which is projections. Um, there are shorts programs. Um, there's our retrospectives. So we'll be announcing those in the coming days. But you know, we're here today to just talk about the main slate. I just want to—I—I—I I, I just want to close by saying, um, with uh, you know, I made a joke out of using the term a tourist, but that's another question that I've gotten for the last couple of years, which is, uh, would you consider you know the New York Film Festival and a tourist film festival? And I'm just like, I—I I don't know how to answer that question. You know, the only way I can answer it is, do we? You know, do I think good films are made by human beings as opposed to I don't know, collections of people making, you know, marketing-driven decisions? Yes, I do. And so, you know, there you have it. Thank you. The 54th New York Film Festival runs September 30th through October 16th and brings the best new cinema from around the world to the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Tickets go on sale to the general public on September 11th. Film Society members at the film buff level or higher receive early access. To become a member, visit filmlink.org membership. VIP passes and subscription packages for the festival are now on sale and offer even earlier access to purchase tickets and secure seats at some of the festival's biggest events, including opening night, centerpiece, and closing night. To find out more, visit filmlink.org NYFF. David Lowry has lent his diverse range of talents to many of the most exciting indie films of the last decade. He worked as an editor on Shane Carruth's Upstream Color and Amy Simons's Sun Don't Shine, a producer on Alex Ross Perry's Listen Up Philip, and a writer-director on his own 2013 feature debut, Ain't Them Body Saints. With Pete's Dragon, Lowry makes the leap to big-budget studio filmmaking with a remake of the 1977 Disney classic, which he co-wrote and directed. Early reviews of the film have been overwhelmingly positive, with Peter DeBruge and Variety calling it one of the most delightful movie-going surprises. Pete's Dragon opens in theaters this weekend. Back in 2013, David Lowry joined us to talk about his indie hit Ain't Them Bodies Saints, which starred Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara as lovers torn apart by crime. Let's go to that now. Hey there, this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. 
Thank you for listening to our podcast, The Close-Up. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to get new episodes delivered to you every week. You can also rate and review the show on iTunes, which will help us reach more cinephiles like you all around the world and help us make this podcast even better. Thanks again for listening, and now back to our show. Thank you. Thank you for coming to see it. Thank you very much uh, for being here. My pleasure. This is exciting to see it on the screen. It looks so beautiful. <laughs> so um, I guess I want to start with a question. Uh, you know, I've been reading a lot of the reviews, which have been, uh, you know, since going back to when it had played at, at Sundance and in Cannes. Um, and a lot of critics refer to this as a Western. It, it's, yeah. a, it's a word that, you know, basically every review I read, I think I can find that word there. Yeah, yeah. Do you consider it a Western? In a manner of speaking, yeah. I've always, I've always used that term myself. And it's not a Western in the traditional sense by any means. And it's not like, I didn't want to make like a postmodern Western or a deconstructionist Western or anything like that. But I did want to make a movie that, although it's set in a time that technically, you know, it's, I guess the Western period ended after the advent of the automobile. But so it's set in the 1970s and there's no horses and most of the movie takes place indoors. And yet I wanted to use those same archetypes and, and, and film them in the same way. And, and so on an ideological level, if that's not too fancy of a way to put it, it's, I wanted to make something that, that reflected that sort of, the, the, the archetypes of the Western and, and put those archetypes to use. Okay. It's, it's very interesting to me um, because it is, it seems to be uh, frequently compared to, you know, as a young lovers on the run story. Yeah. Which is odd because they're not young lovers on the run. They're yeah, never they, together they, until the very end. They stopped running. Um, and you know, I, I also think it's interesting that you know the film, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it opens with kind of the end of, of the right. typical story. I mean, was that by design? I mean, it seems to me like there's very, it's a very unique way that it, it, the film starts and how it concludes that it's not, it's not like these films that it seems to be referencing or aware of. Um, was that by design as well? I mean, part yeah. I, I wanted to participate in the tradition of those type of films without just, you know, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel, but I also didn't want to just, you know, wear down the same old road that they all, they've all done so well in the past. And, and so I was naturally interested in just the idea of, like, aftermath and consequence and, and just, like, the, you know, whenever I'm writing a script, I'm always interested in, like, the before and after. That's, like, the thing that is always interesting to me, regardless of what the situation is. If it's someone sitting in a room, I'm, like, perversely almost more interested in the room after they leave and just kind of like understanding like what that space is and so this was sort of like a way to participate in the tradition that those films do um and do so well but also just kind of put my own spin on it and and it's still the, the beats of the story are largely the same once you know even though they're not on the run anymore it still kind of like leads towards a similar style conclusion and it's not I, i'm not trying to like throw any crazy left term, uh, left hooks in terms of the plot. But I did want to like just focus on the things that matter to me, which is more of those quiet moments. Um, I, I'd like to ask a question about the, uh, the performances, uh, yeah. which I, I think um, are all extraordinary, uh, but particularly from the three leads from Casey Rooney and, and Ben. Um, you know, you are the writer of the film, you're the director of the film, um, but can you talk about sort of the contribution of the actors as far as um, you know, was it a was it a fully written script and everybody stuck to it? Was there a lot of input from the actors as far as the performances, specifically with Rooney? Because I feel, 
I, I've seen the film a number of times, and this is the most roundabout question yeah. ever. Uh, I've seen the film a number of times now, and it's every time I see it, I, I feel like I can never really quite gauge what she's thinking. Um, exactly. I mean, yeah, it was it was tough for us to gauge that. And but I mean, can can you talk about that? I mean, can you talk about sort of what what the actors brought to the role as far as sort of building these characters? Was it something you did in consultation while you were writing? Or did it change a lot on the set? If you can just sort of talk about that a little it bit. It was it was fully written. Like I mean, and and on a word by word basis, ninety five percent reflects the script, or maybe ninety percent reflects what was written. But there were you know immense. The actors brought an immense amount to it that wasn't there on the page. And for example, like with Rooney's character on the page, yeah, you, she's she's very opaque through most of the movie, and it was very difficult to, you know, as a reader get a hold on what exactly was she was thinking, especially because that letter that she um, writes that you hear the voiceover of, that, that was something that wasn't in the script. At least it wasn't an early draft, and I took it out because I, I knew it was going to go back in there, but I just wanted to wait and, and have it come in later. And so the thing I did with Rooney was really just you know go through it scene by scene and sort of just figure out what she's thinking in any given scene and sort of like let that sort of, you know, extrapolate the subtleties of the performance from that feeling. So really trying to figure out what her mindset is as a character. And often it's very torn. Like she's completely torn through the whole movie until the end. She's like just torn between these two ideals. And with Ben, he really, you know, the character as written is again very like almost word for word the same except for one or a couple key differences. One of which was that I wrote the character from my perspective, which I'm someone who hates guns and hates violence. And and if I were, the reason I'm not a policeman is because I would have quit on day one. And so I wrote the script where where his sheriff at the end he he tells her like I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to I don't want to be this guy anymore. I want to get rid of my gun and go. You know I want to do something else. And 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 Ben went and did a lot of research, which is you know like he really just dug in. He spent a month living in Texas. He went and lived with a family of sheriffs in Midland, Texas, and just really got to understand that culture and those those ethics and what it means to have that job, which is a very time-honored job. And he came to me and told me that, you know, if this guy signed up for that job, he would not quit. Like, he wouldn't. That's not who he is. And, and, and just because he doesn't do it, he did, just because he doesn't quit doesn't mean the character has to be changed. You know, that, and that was something that took me a, took me a moment to realize because at first I thought, well, that doesn't, that's not how the, the character, the character's arc needs that to happen. But he was able to complete that arc even, you know, while bringing what he thought was right for the character uh, into that performance. And that was something that was really valuable to me to like learn to let go of what I'd written in that case and what I thought was important and realize that, you know, he can, as a, you know, being an incredibly talented actor, he can actually, you know, accomplish everything I want and still bring what he feels is right to the part. And that was a remarkable discovery, especially like watching it happen on set and realizing, wow, he's he's completely nailing this, and it's in a way that I had not anticipated. And with Casey, Casey just loves to, I mean, all those monologues that he has were written, but a really great example is the one where he's talking to himself in the mirror. That wasn't in the script initially. I knew there was going to be dialogue there, but I didn't write it, at, you know, in the initial drafts, just because I wanted to wait and see like who was going to play the part and what felt necessary in that moment. And so the morning we shot that uh, scene, which in the script was just like one line, it was like Casey washes his, or Bob washes his face and puts on a shirt. And I wrote four different monologues for him, 
and gave them to him that morning and said, here's a bunch of, you know, material. And then now we're just going to roll the camera and you do whatever you want with this stuff and just put your own spin on it. And so, you know, there's like, you know, a bunch of those things are things that I wrote and a bunch of things are uh, a bunch of those lines, like the one where he says, you know, we fought like two kids with a ball, things like that. Like he would just throw those things in there. And, and he is wonderful with that. He can just under, he understands the parameters of the project and he knows exactly what type of spin he can get away with, uh, especially within the confines of his character. And, and it was just so much fun to let him run wild in that regard. It's, it's extraordinary. That's an extraordinary scene. The yeah, the the, the old Joe Scanlon monologue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, favorite. that's a, it's like one of my like two or three favorite scenes in the movie, and 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 part of the reason is is because he just really took. That's a, an, an you know that's an example of him taking who that character was and and running with it, and it's beautiful. But then coming back to then when when Sylvie does actually see him at the end, it's it's yeah, uh, exactly. It's, it's very exactly. powerful. I, I love that as well. Um, I'd like to open it up to the audience if anybody has any questions uh, for David. Uh, yes, you, sir. Uh, I'm just going to repeat yeah. it so everybody can hear it. Um, that when the film premiered in Sundance, it, it was frequently um, compared to some of the early work of Terrence Malick. And um, was that something that you were expecting as you were making the film? And was that something you set out to do? I mean, was he, uh, his early stuff, Badlands and Days of Heaven, an influence? Badlands naturally was because it's, it's picking up literally where Badlands leave off as far as the narrative goes. There's, there's no denying that that was, you know, that was there. And that's an easy connection to make. And it's one that I would make myself if I was to describe the film. I would say, you know, yeah, it picks up where Badlands picks, leaves off or Bonnie and Clyde or any of those movies. But, but to be honest, we weren't thinking about Malick at all. And, you know, the, the, I get the comparisons, but I, I, I would always hope that people would look beyond that because, you know, stylistically there are some lens flares and some grassy fields mostly most of them are in the first five minutes of the movie and then the rest of the movie we're trying to do something completely different and we have a lot of other people that we you know we're we're thinking about and 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 perhaps referencing but uh and those those people never get brought up <laughs> so look lucky for those filmmakers who don't feel like i'm off ripping them off um is anyone else um, I, I'd like to actually would follow up on that question because I think that's a very interesting one. Is the um, you know you mentioned Badlands and you mentioned Bonnie and Clyde, but the character of Bob Muldoon is he's he's notably different from those characters. I mean, yeah. it's, you know that that Kit from Badlands is is a sociopath, and, and you know you could make the same argument for for Clyde Barrow and Bonnie and Clyde, but but Bob is him, and Bob actually seems to be a guy that that you know doesn't really want to hurt anybody but there's yeah, something about this life that's right. can you can you sort of talk about those characters in those films and then the character of Bob Muldoon and and you know and how was he was created I think he you know he's someone who looked up to those people in the same way that there was always like the media circus around Bonnie and Clyde and they were kind of celebrities in a strange way and and the same thing goes for Jesse James and Billy the Kid back in back in the day they were all you know, there were comic books drawn about them. They were sort of like, they were celebrities in their time in spite of the fact that they were sociopaths or horrible people or murderers or whatever they were. And, and there's no denying that the, you know, the ideal of the outlaw has always, you know, been pervasively popular in American culture. So here is a guy who kind of grew up thinking that was cool, who grew up thinking that it'd be cool to be a bank robber or something like that and just never got over that. And he's, we always, you know, talked on set about how, you know, Bob is basically just a little kid dressing up as a bank robber, and he just never stopped doing that. And he's never grown up. He's never become an adult. And so he doesn't really think of himself as a bad guy. He'll say things like, you know, I used to be the devil, but now I'm just a man. But that's just because he likes to say cool things about himself. He likes to spin tall tales. And he's a pretty 
poor criminal, you know, he, they don't do that good of a job from what we can tell because they get caught. And he, uh, he manages to escape the police for a while, but at the end of the day, he gets, he gets shot and, and doesn't really succeed at anything he wanted to do. And yet, at the same time, he's such an idealistic character. He's such a dreamer that you can't help but, like, you know, hopefully he can't help but get on his side and, want, and root for him to some degree because he doesn't, you know, he, he sees himself as sort of like a folk hero rather than as a, almost like a Robin Hood, even though he probably wasn't giving the money away to anybody. Um, and it's kind of interesting, sort of that relationship, and you, and you sort of wonder about the, you know, the evolution of, of Rooney's character from, you know, when they were these sort of young, exciting yeah. times, and then, you know, four years later, and maybe reality has kind of kicked in a little bit. Um, and I think that the the contrast between the two of them is very interesting from the beginning of the film. Into the, the idea end. is always that she like she grows up. She she's an adult. By the time he gets out of prison, she's fully, you know understood what it means to be an adult and to be responsible and to, to be responsible for other people and she might not like it but that's what she's you know she's accepted and he is on the completely opposite end of the spectrum and that is you know I wasn't even thinking about this when we were shooting it but at the end it's kind of nice like he is take she's become like a very maternal figure at that point and at the end she's cradling him like a little kid and you know both in the past and in the present and and that is very reflective of where they are as people at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, does anyone else have any? Um, yes, you, ma'am. Um, th that's actually a great question because yeah. it's um, the 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 people who are chasing after him, not the law. Um, it's it's kept very vague, and mm -hmm. you could certainly lead to believe that that the crimes of the past it, it seem to exceed uh, just normal bank robberies. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where. It was intentionally left vague so that those characters could take on like a sort of symbolic meaning of some sort. And yeah, like they, they definitely, when Scarrett tells them that, you know, you effed over your share of people in your day, they must have done something worse than just like casual stick ups. But it was one of the, you know, the way, I, way we always looked at it was like they probably didn't even think of it as being that bad. They probably didn't think it was like they didn't realize they were hurting anybody. And, and so, yeah, they, might, they may have done something terrible. We, we talked a lot about whether they ever actually had killed somebody or something, like someone got hurt. And we had, like, newspaper articles that we had made, mocked up that, like, had a bunch of different things. Like, some of them were people got shot. Sometimes they were. And we debated, like, whether we should show those or not or, or hold them back. And ultimately, we just decided to keep that information as vague as possible. You can glimpse little things in that one real brief montage of newspaper clippings. But, um, but yeah, like, they did probably do something terrible but you know they just don't realize it they don't think about it or especially bob never would have thought about it well i mean that's very clear i mean in that scene i mean the, the shootout towards the end you really do kind of get the impression that's how casey's playing it is i have no idea who you are he says yeah he's like he's me. like i've never seen you before like like why would you, why are you here i have no idea and then at the end he's like someone sent him and they came from somewhere like he has no clue that he might have done something that would have hurt somebody in the past um, if you could talk about uh, the editing process, um, and if that's something that comes in, uh, you know, you have a, a background as an editor, mm -hmm. as a film editor, and other and other projects. Um, and can you talk about that as as far as like how you were writing it and how you were shooting it? It was definitely written that way. Like the first fifteen minutes of the movie are fairly like jumping, you know, across periods of time. Especially once he goes to prison, and we have that that montage that leads up to the birth of the child, and that all that was on the pa on the page. And, and some of the other montage sequences were that were more elliptical. They were also like Ruth with her daughter. That was all written that way. But, um, 
it's, I don't know, it's just, I like that sort of flow. I like things that flow that way. And what I wanted to try to do with this movie was to have like a lot of really, especially in those, in those montage sequences, like really strong frames that are really, that could, you know, hold up on their own and just like slip from one to the next really, really rapidly. And really just kind of like flow through them and create like this, this accumulative effect of, of, um, of the passage of time and like not give any one of those frames as much as they might be a strong frame on their own that much importance or that much weight. So you just feel like you're getting all of this, you know, these you know, hopefully to some degree, like when we're on set thinking about like, okay, this is a profound image and we're going to keep it for like two seconds so that nothing, every, nothing feels permanent. You're just constantly just flowing through everything. And, and that was, that was the approach, like, you know, trying to, trying to just create this like, a cumulative, almost decoupage-style sense of, of, of the passage of time. Uh, yeah, a question that I've, I've heard at a number of these Q&As is, uh, where did you get the title from, and what does it mean? It is a title that predates the movie, and I, I, came, I came up with it, and I say I came up with it. Um, I, I misheard some song lyrics in the way that you often will hear song lyrics and just process them the wrong way. It was like an old folk song. And I just liked it. I was like, that's a fun phrase. I like it. It has a lot of like, you know, interesting qualities to it and a cadence to it and, and a meaning that is really interesting to me. And when I started writing the script, I, you know, set out to make a movie that felt like an old folk song. And I wanted a title that evoked those qualities. And I went back to this title that I had just filed away in my brain and, and thought that it worked really nicely. And, and the hope is always... You know, there, there's a meaning in that title. And if you really were to break it down, you could you could say that, or, and I do say that it suggests that everyone has a capacity for goodness, and there's an innate goodness to all people. But beyond that, I love the idea of a title that, you know, you go buy a ticket for this movie, and you know that that's the title, and and it has a certain quality to it, it has a cadence to it, it has a rhythm and a rhyme structure, and and whether you're thinking about those things or not, they sort of like get into your subconscious and and get you in the right mindset for the way in which this story works. And so that was, that was all the reasoning behind it. Um, just asking you just to, uh, to speak about the, the role of, um, of the Keith Carradine character. He's, he's basically like, if we had a movie about the past, you know, before the movie starts, he would have been like a Fagin type character, sort of like the guy that runs the small town and in, a unsa in a criminal sort of way. And employs lots of little kids to do things for him. Freddie was his son, and then Bob and Ruth were just kids that he sort of took in. And there's like, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, I'm gonna give one line of dialogue to explain that, and, and then we're just gonna let it go, and let him just kind of like become sort of like a paternal archetype figure. And so he says at the beginning, you know, I took you kids in, and she says, you taught us everything we know how to do, and that's all you get, and, and that is, you know, the way, you know, as you've noticed from the rest of the movie, like, I, I, I was very, I limited the amount of information just so that these characters could kind of not be tied down by, you know, exposition or anything like that. But that is interesting, though, is that do you, you know, as a writer and as a, as a director, um, I mean, do you feel comfortable with the idea of, of sort of leaving some of these things? Try that again. Yeah, uh, yeah. Leaving some of these things vague. I mean, because I think that that is sort of a common response. You know, when I saw it, I was like, wait, who is this guy and what is their relationship? And, it, you know, it, it occurs to me now, or I realize now that that's intentional, but can you sort of talk about that, you know, that you're not necessarily laying everybody out saying this is their relationship and she loves him and he loves her and this happened back then? You know, you leave it very open to interpretation and not everything is explained. I mean, can you talk about 
that decision. There's always like it's a fine line you walk between like being, you know, too opaque and being like deliberately vague, I guess. And and I I really like to you know, not I don't want to I don't want to leave things too open to interpretation, but I do like to leave things unstated, and I like to let, you know, the idea was with that character by the time the movie was over and he had you know, expired at the end, you've gotten a sense of who he was. And he's, he's given you just enough clues to sort of piece together who he is. But beyond that, you know, I didn't want to have, I didn't really, I, I, I like to just like let things exist in the present in the movies. I don't like to, you, um, I lost my train of thought there. I don't like to tie things down with like information that the characters would have already known. So when the movie begins, you know, the, no one has any conversations that are really about anything other than what they would already have known. So like everyone knows who he is, so no one really talks about it. And that's the way I approach screenwriting, sort of like just dropping in in the middle of it. And and I try you know to do just enough information so that there is a little bit in there uh, to orient the audience. But beyond that, I don't want to like have a conversation about oh well back in the day when things were going you know like that sort of thing. And um, and it's it's a fine line. And and I'm I'm you know always interested in seeing like whether I went too far in one direction or not far enough in another and it's it's a constantly evolving process. I think it's very refreshing the way that you do it though. I think it's very effective. Uh, yes, sir. Um, can you talk about, uh, and this has to, actually has to be the last question, but okay. um, can you can you sort of talk about Ruth's letter and I mean do you feel that you know what the intention of it was and you know was the meaning of it intentionally vague or was it misdirection? Can you talk about that? In my opinion it is it's she's saying no. She's saying she's telling him no. You can't, you can't come here. Um, this isn't going to work out. And at the same time, like I'm someone who hates letting people down. And so I, I would always let. I, if I were to write that letter, which I did, <laughs> I would let, I would let the person I love down as easily as possible, and try to leave some vague window for hope, so that they don't feel completely crushed. And that's what that is. And what happened was I wrote that letter and wasn't sure what I wanted her to say. So I wrote a bunch of different things. I wrote, you know, the, you know, don't come here, we're gonna be gone. And then I also wrote, we'll be together again someday. And I was like thinking that we would edit it into one direction or the other. And then Rooney just gave us all of the options. And I ended up just putting all of them in there because I loved how torn she was even then. Like even in trying to tell him no and trying to, you know, put a period on the end of that sentence, she couldn't quite, say that to him and so that period turns into an ellipsis and and uh and so that's that was the intention there but i've heard from a number of folks that they you know interpret it as misdirection and that is i think valid also because that's an interest like if you were to think about it in that terms it changes the rest of the movie in, in an interesting way and, and because it is so open to that you know and and there are no hard answers anywhere else um that cast the last you know 20 minutes of the movie in a really interesting light it's such she's such a great character and it's such an extraordinary performance but uh, unfortunately uh i think you have a, another q a downtown so I, I suppose i do david lowry thank you so much thank you so coming. much for coming yes the close-up from the film society of lincoln center is produced by nick kemp and michael odemark our opening music is by steelism you can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. 
Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.